Please be seated. Our key scripture this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Uh, a section of it is printed in the bulletin here this morning, if you have that with you, and I invite you to open up there uh, with me today, because you're going to have to participate. I know, it's terrible. It's terrible to have to participate. If you don't want to participate, just pretend like you don't have a bulletin or a Bible or a smartphone or an iPad or anything like that. This comes from uh, the book of Revelation again, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and we had taken it, the four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. So we're going to read what's in quotes together. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. So I need a loud voice here, okay, people? They were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. And they all said, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Did you know that in 2020 we are going to have a presidential election? You might not know that. But at this date... For the 2020 presidential election, there are 20 people who are running for sure. There are two that are likely to run and seven that might run, according to an article this week in the New York Times. That means that 29 people so far are considering running for president in 2020. And each of these, well, 20 so far, two likely, seven to come, each of them has thrown an event that has been attended by some sort of crowd that has been there to cheer them on in their efforts to run for president of the United States. 
And that has happened all over the country, in towns that are big and towns that are small, with people you have heard of and people you have never heard of before. This morning, I want us to think a little bit about the act of proclaiming Jesus as king. When he was born, the skies opened and the angels sang, but they sang to a few shepherds out in the field. And in terms of witnesses and proclamations, there were actually not so many (laughs) that were there when Jesus was born here as king. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, he was greeted largely uh, by the poor and those who were sort of on the outsides of society there, a town, and, and they gathered around him and they threw down their cloaks and palm branches and did all of these things for him. And it seems like such a wonderful thing, but in the background, there's a whole other group of people that are standing and watching and they don't see a king, they see someone who is putting their lives in danger. And when Jesus was next crowned, it was with a crown of thorns. As people around him despised him and mocked him and beat him. When he rose again, he appeared to relatively few people. And he caused a stir to be sure. But there was not a worldwide announcement of the risen Lord and coming King. And now we have this moment in heaven. That John sees what is coming And even in heaven, what has happened? No one can open the scroll. What are we going to do? There is no one who can do it, and heaven is looking for an answer. And John, as he sits in the throne room, his only reaction is to do what? To weep. To weep and weep. Because there is no one to open the scroll. But then he's told, don't cry. It's okay. Look. Look, Jesus has triumphed. Jesus is worthy. And in that moment, all of heaven opens up and they begin to sing and shout and celebrate that Jesus is worthy. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And as much as this morning we may accept Jesus as king, there is an element here that strikes me, and that is this. Jesus is still waiting to be crowned king. We are still waiting for the moment when his full glory will be revealed, that time that Paul wrote about when he says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when I think about this world, I recognize that Jesus is not king of this place. Shoot, he's not even always king of our hearts. But he will be crowned. And he is worthy. What does it mean for him to be your king? All right, please be seated. If you, there are any kids left in here, they can head off to children's church and class and all that fun stuff. All right. Well, hi, everyone. 
Uh, a couple things that I want to uh, remind you about is that uh, next week is Easter, so it is a good time to invite friends that maybe you've been talking to about coming to church here or uh, people that maybe don't have somewhere to go. So we did create some brochures, as was mentioned at the very beginning of service, but not everyone was here at the very beginning of service. Uh, we made some brochures, and they are on the table in the back, so if you want to ha- hand something out to your friends, uh, feel free to do that. There's also some cards back there, just like some business cards that have the church's address and phone number and that sort of stuff. So be thinking about who you might invite to come spend next Sunday with us, and it'd be great uh, to have them here uh, with us today. Uh, one other thing that I would like to mention, too, is I've had several people come up to me and say, or I shouldn't say several, I've had a few people I, we often get in discussions about how many are several and how many are few. So, you know, because there's so a, a few people have come up to me and said, "Hey, Bryce, when are you going to talk about the stuff that's on the wall?" To which I reply, "Well, I have, and I've written five bulletin articles about it, so uh, that have been in the bulletins." To which one person said, "Oh, well, I guess I don't read the bulletin." Which, okay, that's that's fair. Uh, so what I am going to do, I'm, uh, what I am going to do is online uh, on the website. If you're interested, sort of in what they are and what they mean and all that stuff, I'll publish all of the uh, articles that I wrote onto uh, the website there, and you can go there and look and see what they mean, or you can just come up and ask me, "Hey, what are these things?" You may also notice that there is now writing on the wall. The writing is on the wall, and uh, so these are our four values, and we got those uh, up yesterday. Over here on this wall, it is going to say our, our vision statement. Don't look for it. It's not there. It's okay. But there is a wall. There is a wall there. Uh, and hopefully that will be going up soon. Uh, but if you have any questions or you want to go onto the website and look for that, I'll try to get those articles up this week. Uh, I want us to think about, I want us to think for a moment about uh, the idea of power and what power looks like. And within, our, within the world that we live in today, Power is a pretty hot topic, and people aren't necessarily coming out and saying it, but within our country today, um, there is a constant war going on for power. Uh, We could call it influence, Uh, we could call it mind control, we could call it all sorts of different things, depending on where we stand on different things, but... Every day, every single day on social media, some of the most powerful people in our country are going on to social media and trying to influence us in one way or another. And more so within this particular presidency than in any other, social media has become a battleground for power and control. Um, And every day, those who lead us, they, they fight in the arena of public opinion and it's not pretty. I don't know if you pay attention to any of this stuff, but people are calling other people names and you know, accusing them of all different sorts of things, and it's just, it's crazy. And I have to be just, from where I sit, and I'm not a very politically oriented person, um, when I look at, at how things are right now, my biggest concern, honestly, is just my children are growing up seeing adults that they're supposed to, supposed to respect treat other people this way. And I think part of what they're seeing is is power, control, and influence being brought to the very surface of who we are 
and what we do and why we make decisions. Yeah, does that feel about right? And, and here's the funny thing, like we don't even have to talk about politics in order to show that this is true. I know that you are all way up on this particular fight, but just allow me to uh, repeat this for you today. There's a fashion blog called Diet Prada. I know, Georgia, you follow it religiously every single day. And this last week, they went after a social media influencer whose name is Ariel Charnas. Now, how many of you know what a social media influencer is? Raise your hand. Okay, so, so some of you do. Good. Some of you don't understand why I put three random words together. So I, I get that too. So there are people who make quite a bit of money these days by simply posting to their Instagram account or uh, generally a lot of times it's Instagram, but they post pictures and they post stories of what they're doing, what they're wearing. And one such person, her name is Arielle Charnas, and uh, she started posting about her life and about fashion and different things. And she ends up now to where she actually has a fashion line that sells at Nordstrom. So this last week, uh, she had released this, uh, this picture of a headband. A headband that women wear. And it's black and kind of big and sticks up like this. So Diet Prada sees this headband. And it looks a lot like a headband that Prada designed. So Diet Prada, in their Instagram, went after this Ariel Charnas and um, accused her of stealing design things from Prada. Now, if you want to buy the Prada headband, keep in mind, it's a headband. It's $250 <laughs> for the headband. I don't know how much... Um, how much the one that Ariel Charnas makes is, but it's less than that, significantly. Um, so Diet Prada went on there and they, and they accused her of ripping off the design and their particular article that they wrote about this woman was liked more than 30,000 times over the next few days, which means it was read at least that many times and agreed to by at least that many people. And then many of those people left comments about what they thought. And some of the comments uh, were less than kind, including people telling Charnas that she is ugly, uh, that she needs to watch her back, that her infant child is also useless and talentless and will probably commit suicide because of it, and that she deserved to have her baby thrown under a bus. Over a headband. Over a headband. So things escalated from there. <laughs> With more responses, so she replies back and says, and she's pointing out all these things that people are saying to her, and then Diet Prada replies back and saying, uh, basically accused her of uh, trying to gaslight the people because she was changing the subject from the fact that she was stealing designs, and it just went on and on and on. Welcome to the world that we live in in 2019, where we uh, issue death threats over a black headband. We as a culture seem to have lost our ability to dialogue about things. It's hard to talk with people about things, especially if you know that you might disagree uh, with them about whatever it is. And, and part of the problem is because everything has become a polarizing issue. It's a, become an issue of influence, control, and power. Who are you listening to? What do you believe? Who is running the information that you are 
getting and then sharing with other people. But furthermore, how awful are the people who disagree with you? And we have gone so far as to begin to question their very existence. To question their very existence if they disagree with us on something. There is a constant struggle over who or what will influence the most and who has the power. So Jesus is a controversial figure. Jesus is a controversial figure and, and Jesus has always been a controversial figure. There was not a time from when Jesus started his public ministry here on earth and went out and started talking and dealing with people that he was not controversial. Jesus spent time with people you were not supposed to spend time with. Jesus did God things on days you were not supposed to do God things because God didn't want you to do God things on those God days. There was a lot of God in that sentence. Jesus healed people when he wasn't supposed to. He included people when he wasn't supposed to. He went places he wasn't supposed to go. Jesus was a really controversial guy. And he still is. I mean, do you realize that even after Jesus rose from the dead, there were a number of different explanations as to why there was no body in the tomb? Why? Because people could not agree on who he was or what he was about, and they couldn't decide which voice they most, they most wanted to listen to. There were too many voices even then trying to pull people in different directions. And just so you know, Jesus himself never said that he was not controversial. In fact, he said, I have come to bring what? A sword that he would divide families, that he would divide relationships. So when we start this morning, we have to understand that as crazy as the scenario I described to you this morning is, it is not something new. And if Instagram and Twitter existed in the time of Jesus, you would not believe the kinds of things that people would have been saying about him. Oh my goodness, Jesus is wearing these sandals. You can get them at this place. Why would I want to wear sandals like Jesus? Are you serious? That dude walked on water. No, he didn't. It was cold, and that part of the water was frozen. I mean, can you just imagine what some of the dialogue might have been like? And today, uh, we are looking at Palm Sunday, and it's something that we've looked at for, for the last several years when this day rolls around. And I'm actually going to share with you some ideas that I shared with you about three years ago. So if, you're, if you remember exactly what I said three years ago, you're welcome to just, you know, <laughs> tune out or walk out the back door, uh, and your memory is way better than mine. Uh, but I think, I think some of the things we looked at three years ago are so applicable to us today that I wanted to remind us of them this morning. Jesus' last week, when he comes to the city of Jerusalem, when he walks in and when he has this a pretty incredible moment is the first step that he takes toward a week that is filled with important events. And we know where the week goes. We know that it leads to the crucifixion of Jesus, and we know that it leads to his rising from the grave. But this event that sort of leads into this week, it teaches us a lot, not just about Jesus, 
but it teaches us a lot about his followers and the kind of world that he lived in and what they were dealing with when it came to Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up to the book of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. It will also be here on the screen behind me. From Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, it's easy to totally focus on Jesus and the crowd when we read this story because this is the setting of the story. But everything else that is happening around this time is just as significant to us understanding the events that we see here. So we're going to look at the setting, at the culture, at Jerusalem, at all the things that are going on around Jesus, and not just this one event, because it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in a place where there is a lot of stuff going on. And the first thing that we see is that this is happening at at which city in particular? Jerusalem. Okay? Jerusalem. We are still today arguing about Jerusalem and about the nation of Israel. Jerusalem was not just any city. By the time of Jesus, it had become the center of the Israelite world for a full millennium. And it became the capital city under the rule of David around 1000 BCE. And then when Solomon built the temple around 900 BCE, Jerusalem became the sacred center of the Jewish world. And it was called, uh, amongst the Israelites, amongst the Jewish people, it was called the navel of the earth. Because they believed that God was everywhere, but it was in Jerusalem that uh, connected the whole world to its source in God. And it was there and only there that God's dwelling place uh, would be. So if you wanted, as a person of God, to connect with God in any way, shape, or form, if you wanted to really be where he was, where would you go? To Jerusalem, to the temple. The temple was not the only place where you could meet God, but it was the only place where you could go and experience the significant moments with God that you needed. It was the place where forgiveness and grace was given. It was the place where you had to offer your major sacrifices. You had to go to this one place. It's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Do you know why? There's like seven churches on this road where we all go and meet God. That's why the people go there. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds a little bit about 
around how important this place was to the people. But according to temple theology, some sins and impurities could only be dealt with at the temple. So if there was something going on in your life that you needed cleansing from, you had to go to Jerusalem. Walk to Jerusalem, in most cases, to experience the forgiveness of God that you needed for whatever it was that was going on. Now, that would make me think, at least because of where my mind is coming from, that that would make Jerusalem like one of the greatest places, right? If you could go there and you could experience the grace of God that you can't experience anywhere else, and this place is you know, supposed to be big and grand and special, then it would seem to me that Jerusalem would be a really special place. But by the time of Jesus, Jerusalem has a lot of other baggage that is carrying with it as well. Because it became the center of what historians call a domination system in the life of God's people. I'm going to break this down for you here first. So a domination system is shorthand. Um, yeah, good. Is shorthand for the most common form of social social systems in ancient and pre-modern times. So it was the it was the system that was most often in place uh, during these periods, and it was marked by three particular characteristics. Number one, there was always political oppression within a domination system, and that most often showed itself by the few were ruled by the many. And oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Reverse that. <laughs> the many were ruled by the few, and the few were the wealthy and the powerful. So that was the first thing. The, the wealthy were in charge. Uh, secondly, there was always economic exploitation. So a high percentage of the society's wealth went to the rich and powerful, and a very low percentage went to those who were poor. And thirdly, and this is one of the more troubling things, they used religion to make it all okay. So this is what God wants, or this is how God set it up, or this is what it is. So in short, in a uh, domination system, it was a political and economic domination of the many by the few, and church was used to justify it. Religion was used to justify it. And we know that this is true um, because of who was in charge of the temple by the time Jesus comes around. Shortly after the reign of David, uh, this kind of system took root within Israel and it all centered around Jerusalem. And it got to be so bad that by the time the prophets roll around that are speaking about Jerusalem, they have some somewhat unkind things to say about the city of Jerusalem. In fact, for many of them, the city itself and the temple became a symbol of the sin of the people. Think about that for a second. It became a symbol, the temple, Jerusalem, the city of God, where you go to meet God, became a symbol among the prophets for what is most wrong with them. That's pretty bad, right there. And just take this one verse, for example, from Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Now, that's actually one of the kinder scriptures. There, the city is compared to, uh, uh, the, or I'm sorry, the rulers of Jerusalem are compared to the rulers of Sodom and the people to those of Gomorrah, which Sodom and Gomorrah, within biblical history, is the two worst places that ever existed on the planet. Uh, uh, so Jerusalem uh, was not always this happy place, and uh, it fell under the control of Rome in 63 BCE, so... 
a few years there before Jesus. And Rome initially set up rule uh, through the high priest and the temple and the rich and the powerful. So I've, I've shared this information with you before, but I'm going to just give you the brief overview again. Uh, there were roughly three parties that were alive at the time of Jesus. Um, one were the zealots who were kind of the radical outside kinds of people. You had the Pharisees who were the teachers of the law, and you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were ultimately the ones who ran the temple. And they were the wealthy, the powerful, and the most influential within that place. Okay, And these are the people who ran the temple. And as I just said here, they were also the ones who were most tied to Rome when all of this stuff goes down. Because Rome's smart, right? So you take over this place. You don't want to rule it because you're ruling the entire world. You just want them to stay in line. And so who do you go into this new place that you've taken over? Who do you try to get in with? Well, you don't go and try to get in with the poor, right? Because that just doesn't make sense to you. They're not going to be able to help you. You go and you get in with those who have power. And what do you do with them? You give them more power. You acknowledge, you guys are the ones that are going to make this happen, you're with us. And so that's really good for the Sadducees, right? Because as long as Rome is in control, who has the most power? They do, which they already control the temple. They already control these things, but they have the most power. So this is good for them. For everyone else, it's not so great. Um, So there were power struggles amongst the wealthy as Rome comes in and they're trying to set up this system. So Rome decided to appoint a king. Now, this is definitely a king in quotations, all right? This is not a king-king because Rome, you know, Pharaoh, or not, gosh, what is the matter with me today? (sighs) Yep, Caesar, (laughs) there we go. Caesar Caesar is the one who is in charge, so they're not appointing a king-king. This is someone mainly like a figurehead who can help rule the people. So they appoint a king, and his name is Herod. And Herod was a recent convert to Judaism, and they put him in charge. And Herod was a terrible, terrible person. I don't know. I, I, there's not a lot of good things that you can say about Herod. He was a ruthless man who, when he was put into power, he first killed all of the elite and powerful, and he raised up his own wealthy friends by giving them land and money to anyone who would be loyal to him. So if you disliked him, he killed you. And if you did like him, he gave you more. And by doing so, he took and made the city really a pretty corrupt place. But he also rebuilt the city, he rebuilt the temple, and he turned Jerusalem back into a symbol of great wealth and strength. And so there were some, I guess you could say, maybe some good things he did for the nation of Israel, but he did it to mainly benefit himself. And and after he died, the people revolted, and Rome Uh, was not going to stand for that. So Rome came in and they squashed the rebellion quickly and decisively, crucifying 2,000 defenders of Jerusalem all at once. So they just made a line down the road and crucified as many people, these these 2,000 people. And they no longer trusted this kind of system to work. So they decided instead of trying to give a lot of uh, authority to King Herod or to this kind of a person, that they would allow the temple and its authorities to take over all of the roles that they wanted Herod to fulfill. So the temple became the very center of the domination system. 
Think about that for a second. The temple became the very center of the domination system. It was the place where Rome had its greatest hold over the people, and so Rome used it in that way. They were in control of the local area economics and politics, and they were the ones that ensured that all money and honor was given to Rome. And at the center of this were the temple authorities that were headed by the high priest, uh, the elders who were the wealthy elite and the scribes. And they ruled over the area, but were in turn, again, ruled by Rome. And they had, this is going to sound like a dumb thing to say, but they had a difficult job in terms of what they actually had to try to manage because they had to collaborate with Rome enough to make Rome happy while not doing it so much that they alienated the Jewish people and upset the balance of power. Okay? So this system allowed the leaders to take advantage of the way that things were to become even more powerful. So here's an example. Okay, the law had provision that would allow for families to, to uh, hold on to their land so that everyone would have a place where they could provide for their families. So if, if you owned land, you would pass it down, you would pass it down, and therefore, as your family grew, there would always be a place for them to go. However, the kings could confiscate the land and give it to the elites, which is what Herod did, um, and they could also foreclose if a debt was owed. So when people lost their land, that meant they not only had to become someone else's laborer, but they also could no longer grow their own food, so they had to go buy that from someone else too. Thus, the poor population grew tremendously while the wealthy gained more and more power. Um, and at the middle of this mess, again, was the temple, which made the whole thing okay because it was the dwelling place of God, and all the high priests... And the elders and these people were saying, no, this is the way things are now, and this is how it needs to be done. And this is the system into which Jesus rides on his cult. So what can we say about Jerusalem at this point in time? It's a mess. It is a messed up place. It's a messed up place. There is a lot going on. And a lot of it is not good. But there is something more about this time when Jesus entered into the city. Because Jesus' parade into the city was not the only one. There was another parade into the city. Um, so this is sort of a, a rough map of what Jerusalem uh, looked like at the time. And obviously there's not a lot of detail. So there was uh, this, the procession that we are most familiar with, and this is Jesus' parade into the city. So it happened here uh, on the north part of town. Jesus was staying in Bethany, and he came down. And if you notice here in Mark, he comes down into the city. And in the book of Mark, this is the first time he comes to Jerusalem, period. So he comes down from Bethany to the city, and he's going to enter up here, if I can get this to work. Yes, I can. Through this gate. Okay, so he's coming down that road. He's going to go through the Golden Gate, which takes him right where? To the temple. It leads him to the temple. And in fact, Mark tells us there in verses 1 through 11 that when Jesus comes, he checks out the temple, and then what does he do? He goes back to Bethany. He doesn't spend the night there in uh, Jerusalem. 
Um, and they had come from, uh, like I said, up that way, they had come from the area of Galilee in Bethany, where Bethany was, which is about 100 miles to the north. They made their way down here, Jesus and his followers, and they entered at that gate. So here's what else was going on. On the opposite side of the city, Pilate was coming into the city. And he was coming from uh, the south. And, uh, excuse me, um, and, and his procession was, was, was very intentional um, about what he was doing. Uh, it was the procession of, of Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of uh, this whole area, and he came at the head of a column of imperial ca- uh, cavalry soldiers. And he was coming up there during the time of Passover, which is one of the biggest festivals uh, in in the Jewish people's lives. It's what they do every year, and it's where they celebrate what? What did they celebrate at Passover? When God liberated them from Egypt, which is where Pharaoh was, by the way, in case you're wondering. When God liberated them from Egypt. So Pilate is coming with his own procession to Jerusalem during the time of Passover. Okay? That's, <laughs> that's a big move right there. And it's one that they're doing on purpose. Um, it was a standard practice of Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for the major Jewish festivals. And it was for particular reasons, which I don't even know that I need to explain to you this morning, but I'm going to because my job is to talk. Um, they wanted to make sure that they were there uh, on hand in case there was any sort of trouble, and especially at the time of Passover because, you know, if you think about it from Rome's perspective, what is Passover? Well, it's the story of God delivering the Israelites from the most powerful empire on the earth. So if you are now the most powerful empire on the earth, and these are the people you're trying to keep under control, what do you want to remind them of while they're celebrating what God has done? How much control you have over them, and how much now this is your story and not their story. So consequently, there was a strong military presence that entered with the governor to reinforce the Roman uh, garrison that was permanently stationed in the fortress of Antonio, which is right there, right next to the temple and the temple mount. Um, And it actually overlooked the temple and its courts. So they would have come from uh, Caesarea Maritima, which is about 60 miles away, Um, which was a newer city that had been built by the sea and that Rome had turned into a major port for that area. And so here they came with all of these horses and cavalry and foot soldiers and leather armor and helmets and weapons and banners and golden eagles mounted on poles and the sun shining off of of the armor and the sound of marching feet and the beating of drums and the horses. And the final stop of this procession was to the Antonia Fortress, which overlooked the temple. Now, This procession not only showed imperial power, but it also was a demonstration of Roman theology. Um, Because again, Israel had their God, but who did Rome believe was really in charge? Caesar. And in particular, this guy. Um, According to Roman theology, the emperor was not just the ruler of Rome, but he was also the, you ready for it? Son of God. Uh, and it began with Augustus, who ruled Rome from 31 BCE to 14 CE, and then every, every uh, uh, Caesar after that was considered to be uh, the son of God. So Augustus, his father was said to be Apollo, who conceived him 
uh, and his mother, and he was referred to as Son of God, Lord, and Savior, one who has brought peace to the earth. And after his death, guess what happened to him? He was seen ascending into heaven to take his permanent place among the gods. This is the, of course, the, the rumor, the legend that goes around him. And the emperors who followed him continue to bear divine titles and continue to be considered gods among men. So when Pilate comes into the south gate of Jerusalem, he was meant to give a very clear uh, message to the nation of Israel. And that is this. You are about to celebrate the time that God delivered you from an empire, but we are now the empire. And our leader is a son of God. And there is nothing you can do to stop us from keeping control over you. Nothing. One comes in from the north, one comes in from the south. So let's take a look here at what happens with Jesus. One thing that is really clear about Jesus' parade is that Jesus planned the whole thing in advance. So we see this there in Mark chapter 11. He, he knew what was going on and everything that he did, he did on purpose. Um, so Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead to find a young colt, which a colt, I, I think the idea that most biblical scholars say is the idea is that it's a, it's a colt that has never been ridden, so that Jesus would be the first. And so when he rides down uh, from the Mount of Olives, the city uh, comes out with this enthusiastic crowd that follows him. And there was specific sim- like some specific symbolism that Jesus wanted to show up here. Uh, so... Uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. Like, why is it that Jesus asks for this cult? So listen to these words. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So according to Zechariah, the king will come riding into which city? Jerusalem on a colt. And, and the people will come out and they will celebrate his coming. But what is the coming king going to do? This is the most interesting part of this particular verse to me. He will banish war from the land, including chariots, war horses, and bows. Well, what just came in on the other side? Chariots, war horses, and bows. He will, he will be a king of peace, and he will have what can only be, be described as a great empire stretching to the ends of the earth. So Jesus' parade into Jerusalem directly contradicts the parade that's happening on the south side of town. Directly contradicts it. Pilate's procession embodied the power and glory and violence of the empire that ruled the world. One man at the head of this triumphant army. And Jesus' procession was some sort of weird alternate version of this, but it's about the coming of the kingdom of God, where there is one man on a donkey surrounded by the celebrating poor who is going to set people free instead of keeping them captive. And the question that has to come to mind is this. As these two parades are entering the city at the same time, who is going to take control? Who has the power? Who has the influence? Who is going to end up owning this city whose kingdom 
will reign. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to tell them that there is a different king, there is a different power, and that God is doing something in the world. And he is coming to tell those who are most closely tied to what the empire in charge is doing in the world. But what is it that Jesus is trying to tell them? What is it that he really wants? What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? We can look at these two passages here from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And from Mark chapter 9, verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. You know, we live in a world where people are constantly grasping for power and influence. Constantly. Constantly grasping for power and influence over you. Over what you think, over what you see, over what you believe. But I want you to see something. There were two parties that entered Jerusalem that day. One was undeniably, visibly more powerful. And they walked in there trying to show everyone how in control they were. And on the other side, there was this homeless, itinerant teacher who rode in amongst the cries of the poor on a donkey. But here's something that really strikes me in this moment. And that is this. Rome grasps for power because it wants to control us. And it wants to be the empire. And it wants to be the ruler of the world. And Jesus strolls in on a donkey because guess what? His father already is the ruler of all things. The creator of all things. In control of all things. And if there is one thing that Jesus is not, he is not desperate for attention or to prove himself to any of us. He wants them to not see some sort of desperate man clinging to power. Instead, he shows them a man empowered by God who does not want to control them but to set them free. Who does not want to control them but to set them free. And then, this man of absolute power allows this corrupt city, allows this corrupt city to take his life because they're afraid 
of the power he might take from them. Here's what is really great about that. We have a God who is not reaching and grasping and desperate. Can I say that one more time? Because I feel like I need to. We have a God who is not reaching and grasping and desperate. Instead, we have a God who is fulfilling, who is doing what he has said he has done, he would do. We have a God who is showing in everything he says and everything he does in the ways that he blesses that he is in complete control. And we have a God whose plan is so absurd Yet, it is the exact thing that the world needs. That this man, who is the embodiment of God, would come to this place to allow these people to kill him, that these same people might experience life with the God that they've ignored for so long. Praise God that he is the one that is writing the story. Praise God that he can walk into the most corrupt system and bring salvation in the middle of that system. Praise God that he is the redeemer of all the bad things in our lives. Praise God that Jesus is more powerful than whatever show of power we might put in front of him. Praise God that he does not get tired of the way we posture ourselves. Praise God that he loves us in spite of our foolishness and arrogance. Praise God that he decided he would solve this problem for us. Praise God that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll to tell the rest of the story, which is that we will not be left to our own devices, but Jesus has come to this place to offer us love, forgiveness, salvation, and redemption. Praise God! Hosanna in the highest! Glory be to Him! Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Heavenly Father, We know that during this week that Jesus is going to journey to the cross, but God, it is not others who take him to the cross. He goes because it is the story you are telling. He allows this to happen because it's a story you are telling. For Father, you know that there cannot be salvation without sacrifice, and you sacrifice, God, for us. You give everything for us. Us And we praise you this morning, God, because you are not like the Romes of this world. You are not like the Caesars of this place. You have the power already, and God, you chose to use your power not to control us, but to set us free. And we praise you for that. In the name of your Son, Jesus who gives us life, we say thank you. And we say amen.
If you have any need for prayer or encouragement this morning or you want to know this God who loves you in such a dynamic way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.